Section 1 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, January 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in March 2020. Three Weeks in Hubbard Bay, West Greenland by Robert Stein, United States Geological Survey. In 1893, I published a plan of Arctic exploration from a base near Jones Sound, proposing first to trace the west coast of Ellesmere Land and afterward to explore the triangle between Ellesmere and Grinnell Lands on the east and the Perry Islands on the south. That field was declared by General Greeley to be the one in all the Arctic that promises the largest results with the least amount of labor and danger. Lieutenant Julius from Paya declared that the spot selected for the base was the most suitable and the plan thus far the best imaginable. Numerous weighty authorities concurred in this opinion, especially Lieutenant Peary, who called the plan one of the safest, most promising and cheapest, avoiding hurry and permitting the utilization of experience. As now planned, the expedition would cost $5,000. Failing to secure the requisite funds, I decided, by Lieutenant Peary's advice, to undertake a preliminary trip to Greenland in order to gain the experience in Arctic exploration which in his opinion would be of most essential service in securing financial support. Through the kind assistance of the late Honorable Gardiner G. Hubbard, President of the National Geographic Society, as well as of Major J. W. Powell, Director of the Bureau of American Ethnology, Professor S. P. Langley, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, and Mr. C. D. Walcott, Director of the U.S. Geological Survey and of the National Museum, I was enabled to take advantage of Lieutenant Peary's invitation to accompany him on his seventh Greenland voyage in the summer of 1897 to spend three weeks in exploration in an interesting field. Lieutenant Ryder, of the Danish Navy, explored in 1887 the bay north of Wilcox Head, which I have called Hubbard Bay, and there found numerous Eskimo remains. The present Eskimo of Upanivik and Kasiusak never, until the spring of 1897, extended their hunting trips beyond the great rookery of Cape Shackleton, while the Cape York tribe, according to Lieutenant Peary, never go farther south than Melville Monument. This leaves a gap of 140 miles. Inspector Olsen at Upanivik, to whom I am much indebted for valuable assistance, told me that the Eskimos of that colony had a tradition that their ancestors used to go hunting near Wilcox Head, but ceased to do so about 200 years ago, so far as he can estimate. How much farther north they had gone he could not tell. Thus the remains found by Ryder were of unusual interest, as representing a stage when the race was unaffected by civilization, except, perhaps, that of the early Norsemen. To collect such remains was my main object. As Lieutenant Ryder sent a collection to the Ethnographic Museum at Copenhagen, 
I feared that nothing of note would be left at the sites he had touched, and therefore asked Mr. Peary to land me at Cape Malm, the north end of Hubbard Bay. With three Eskimos from Upper Nivek, I was landed on August 10th on a headland supposed to be Cape Malm, the dense fog preventing accurate orientation. From the top I perceived next morning that I was on the island next south, which I have called Hoyt Island, separated from Cape Malm by a channel five miles wide, filled with icebergs. As soon as the fog had lifted I prepared to row over to Cape Malm, but when we reached the west end of Hoyt Island and saw before us the wild chaos of rapidly moving icebergs, the Eskimos, thoroughly frightened, refused to row farther, even for triple pay. Lieutenant Peary had urged me to listen to the Eskimos' advice in regard to ice and wind, and I recognized that under no circumstances must I fail to keep my appointment to meet him on September 1st, because such failure would subject him to the inconvenience of having to search for me in those unknown and ill-reputed waters of Melville Bay. Accordingly, after ten minutes parley, finding that their apprehensions were real, I turned back. I now decided to make a thorough exploration of Hoyt Island as the type of a group. The island consists of four mountain masses, the highest about 1,000 feet, separated by deep valleys. Except on the storm-beaten western peninsula, which seemed entirely bare, the southern slopes, where not too near in the perpendicular or too smoothly glaciated, are covered with the ordinary arctic vegetation blueberries, crowberries, grasses, heather, poppy, dwarf willow, dwarf birch, and an abundance of moss, forming carpets into which the foot sank up to the ankle. Everywhere the sod was sliding down in great, black, wavy avalanches, held together by tough, peaty fibre, so that plants were often seen growing from vertical or even overhanging surfaces. The summits and the north flank, a succession of nearly vertical cliffs, are almost entirely bare of vegetation. In the shadow of many cliffs lay long snowbanks, a put, hard as ice, offering considerable resistance to the knife, yet evidently not of many years' growth, since a hollow space beneath them bore witness to active melting. The tinkle of little streams could be heard in many places, but only at one point was there a watercourse sufficiently definite to be called a brook. The summits and sides, where not too steep, were strewn with glacial boulders, differing from the bedrock, though eruptive, with the exception of three conglomerates. Glacial striae were seen on the northeast summit. The whole island is seamed by frost fissures. Many of the projecting pinnacles are weathered into fantastic forms and surrounded by a conical talus of glittering rhombic crystals. In many places the talus formation was so active as to overwhelm the vegetation. Nine freshwater lakes, the largest about thirty acres in extent, were seen, some in the valleys, other on the level summits. They were the favorite resort of the red-throated diver, always seen in pairs, but no other life was observed in them. The life in the sea was exceedingly abundant. Seals were seen nearly every day. 
eider ducks, mitek, in long lines, each numbering perhaps five hundred, were paddling over the water with rhythmic cackle. Each cove was alive with little auks, serpak, handsome in their coat of black, white, and red, their thin, piping voices seeming curiously out of proportion to the size of the bird. The air was alive with gulls and terns. Wherever the depth of water permitted, the bottom could be seen completely covered with vegetation. Long strings of kelp, when drawn out of the water, were found to harbour quite a fauna of crustaceans and mollusks. A piece of bone thrown into the water would be covered with shrimps in a few moments. No reindeer were seen, but shed antlers testified to their occasional visits. The snow bunting and ptarmigan found abundant food in the blueberries and crowberries. The blueberry bushes were fairly alive with little black spiders. Several specimens of a hairy caterpillar and of a large fly were secured. Bears had left records of their visits in numerous seal bones, but were not seen, having gone away with the floe ice. The same description applies to most of the land in the vicinity. On Inuksulik, the island next east, I found the cairn marking riders farthest north. Great volcanic fissures, 200 to 100 feet wide, between vertical walls, traverse that island in all directions. Being for the most part level floored, they afford easy thoroughfares for travel. The level floor is evidently due to glacial action, being formed of debris, sometimes angular, sometimes rolled, so as to resemble a collection of cannonballs. Successive terminal moraines have converted several of these avenues into stairways. Though much higher than Hoyt Island, Inuxulik's summit also is boulder-strewn. A brook dashes down its west side, large enough to be impassable near its mouth. Both from Hoyt Island and from Inuksulik I had a full view of the inland ice of Greenland, extending as a white band along the eastern sky and discharging through the magnificent Hearst Glacier with a front of 15 miles, casting off enormous icebergs which completely blocked Henderson Bay and came slowly trooping down in a stately procession to join the great muster of their fellows in Baffin Bay. Far above the glacier, a Nunatak, Mount Pepper, leaved its black head out of the inland ice. Long crevasses on each side showed that the peak was part of a precipitous wall over which the ice dropped in a cascade several miles long. On White Island, in the centre of Hubbard Bay, I found at last the main object of my quest, Eskimo remains. There were two houses beside a little lake on a low rocky spur projecting westward, but the main settlement was on the east side, in a most picturesque site, conspicuous afar by the vivid green of the abundant vegetation. Like the Carthaginians, these ancient Inuits had an outer and an inner harbour, separated by a ledge of rocks over which the tide flowed in and out. The inner harbour was elliptic in outline and about fifty acres in extent. A long knife edge of rock protected the bays on the south, and so high were the ridges and so deep the bays that the water must remain unruffled in the fiercest storms unless they come directly from the east. 
On a level space between the two bays was the settlement, a dozen houses, with graves scattered in among them and along the foot of the hills. Directly behind was a freshwater lake, brown with decaying matter, but a second and larger lake, some thirty feet higher, was clear and pure. A few graves were also found on the south side. Stone fox-traps were scattered all over the island. The eyes of my Eskimos beamed with delight, for to them the snug harbour, the easy landing, the low-level plateau, the fresh-water lake within a stone's throw, in the midst of such abundance of animal life, must have seemed a paradise. Where the wave-beat had exposed a section of the soil, it was seen to consist of a black mass, thickly interlarded with bones of whale, walrus, narwhal, and seal. Evidently, the garbage question had not begun to vex the minds of these ancients. So far as I could judge, the houses and graves had remained untouched since their builders departed, though Ryder mentions remains on that island. The roofs had fallen in, and the rich humus had given rise to a rank vegetation of grass and moss, which had deeply buried the houses, so that some of them could only be traced by the quadrangular swellings of the sod. To my disappointed, the bones in the graves were all confusedly jumbled together, so that it was impossible to make out a complete skeleton. As each grave contained several skulls, the disorder was doubtless due to the fact that the bones of earlier skeletons had been moved aside to make room for new arrivals. While I was engaged in the task of spoilation, the fog turned into rain, converting the mould into a slimy paste in which fragments of decayed bones or other material could no longer be distinguished. Fearing to spoil the material of a future and better equipped expedition, which the locality richly deserves, I decided to content myself with the spoils of two graves. On Richardson Island, one of the two low islands south of White Island, the graves had been opened, probably by whalers, and the bones scattered about. Of two houses at the water's edge, all but the back wall had been washed away. I was at first disposed to attribute this to subsidence, but wide and deep cracks in the soil showed that the whole mass of peat and muck was slowly sliding seaward. Similar remains were found on Porter Island and, sadly plundered, at Wilcox Head, and the Eskimos saw others on the Winter Islands. Ryder mentions remains at Cape Cassin and on the north side of Wilcox Head, which I did not see. In a house a little farther south, Ryder found a large white glass bead. This would seem to indicate early Norse influences and add to the interest of the region. My three live Eskimos were interesting study specimens. One of them was a blonde of the purest type, in whom the admixture of aboriginal blood was so slight as to be imperceptible. The others, though dark in hair and eye, were as white-skinned as Europeans. It is the same throughout Danish Greenland. The whole population is being rapidly Aryanized, and within a few generations we shall have the curious spectacle of a race practically Aryan in blood, and of the finest Aryan type at that, the Scandinavian, yet speaking one of the most primitive of savage languages, in which so simple a word as eight is expressed by the polysyllable apenemit gazut. 
some of the young women would pass for beauties anywhere, and one is somewhat shocked at seeing them amid their dingy, desolate surroundings. One peculiarity that struck me as soon as I reached Greenland was the exquisite modulations of the voices of both men and women, constantly reminding one of the French intonations, such as you hear them from the lips of cultured Parisians, a soft, almost plaintive undertone with no abrupt changes, but merely gentle gliding movements within narrow limits of pitch and volume. Their peculiar R, grasse, like the Parisian, the word nursoak is often spelled nuksoak, completes the illusion. It affords me pleasure to acknowledge my indebtedness to Lieutenant Peary for invaluable assistance and unvarying kindness, and to record my gratification at having been an eyewitness of his management, a model of foresight, readiness, energy, fairness, patience, and consideration. In these qualities one perceives the secret of his magnificent achievement and the guarantee of his crowning success, the conquest of the Pole in 1900. In naming features which Ryder left unnamed, I have tried to serve a useful purpose by using the names of some of the foremost advocates of a national university at Washington. This may aid in giving to the movement the publicity which, it would seem, is the only thing needed to ensure its success. Washington, Jefferson, and Madison Islands for three presidents of the United States. Andrews Glacier, for President E. B. Andrews, Brown University. Carroll Glacier, for ex-Governor John Lee Carroll, General President of the Society of Sons of the Revolution, Maryland. Chamberlain, Mountain, for Professor T. C. Chamberlain, ex-President of the University of Wisconsin. Dabney Bay, for Honorable Charles W. Dabney, ex-Assistant Secretary of Agriculture, President of the University of Tennessee. Eaton Peninsula, for General John Eaton, ex-U.S. Commissioner of Education. Edmonds Island, for Honorable George F. Edmonds, ex-U.S. Senator. Fry Mountain, for Honorable William P. Fry, U.S. Senator. Fuller Mountain, for Honorable Melville W. Fuller, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Garland Peninsula, for Honorable A. H. Garland, Ex-Attorney General of the United States. Gilman Peninsula, for President D. C. Gilman, Johns Hopkins University. Harper Strait, for President William R. Harper, University of Chicago. Harris Bay, for Honorable W. T. Harris, U.S. Commissioner of Education. Hawley Strait, for Honorable Joseph R. Hawley, U.S. Senator. Hearst Glacier, for Mrs. Phoebe A. Hearst. Henderson Bay, for Honorable J. B. Henderson, ex-U.S. Senator. Hoyt Island, for Honorable J. W. Hoyt, ex-Governor of Wyoming, Chairman of the National University Committee. Hubbard Bay, for Honorable Gardiner G. Hubbard, first president of the National Geographic Society. Hunton Strait, for Honorable Epa Hunton, ex-U.S. Senator. Jordan Island, for President D.S. Jordan, Stanford University. 
Casson, Cape, for Honorable John A. Casson, ex-U.S. Minister to Austria and Germany. Kyle Island, for Honorable James H. Kyle, U.S. Senator. Langley, Mountain, for Honorable S.P. Langley, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. McGee, Mountain, for Professor W.J. McGee, Ethnologist in Charge, Bureau of American Ethnology. Newcomb, Cape, for Honorable Simon Newcomb, Ex-Director Nautical Almanac. Pepper, Mountain, for Dr. William E. Pepper, Ex-Provost of the University of Pennsylvania, President of the Museum of Science and Arts, Philadelphia, President of the Pan-American Medical Congress. Powell, Mountain, for Major J.W. Powell, Director of the Bureau of American Ethnology, Ex-Director of the U.S. Geological Survey. Porter Island, for General Horace Porter, U.S. Ambassador to France. Proctor Strait, for Honorable Redfield Proctor, U.S. Senator. Richardson Island, for Mrs. Ellen A. Richardson, President of the George Washington Memorial Association. Ridpath Island, for Dr. John Clark Ridpath, Editor of the Arena. Sherman Strait, for Honorable John Sherman, Secretary of State, ex-U.S. Senator. Smith Peninsula, for Colonel Wilbur R. Smith, Kentucky University. Strauss Glacier, for Honorable Oscar S. Strauss, ex-U.S. Minister to Turkey. Vilas Mountain, for Honorable William F. Vilas, ex-Secretary of the Interior, ex-U.S. Senator. Walcott Peninsula, for Honorable C.D. Walcott, Director of the U.S. Geological Survey. White Island, for Honorable Andrew D. White, U.S. Ambassador to Germany, ex-U.S. Minister to Russia. Wilson Strait, for Honorable William L. Wilson, ex-Postmaster General, President of Washington and Lee University. Wright, Lake, for Honorable Carol D. Wright, U.S. Commissioner of Labor. Besides these, the following names were deemed appropriate. Mounts Björling and Kalstenius for the two young Swedish explorers who were lost in an attempt to reach Ellesmere Island in 1893. The two peaks were ascended by Björling in 1891. Mount Ryder for Lieutenant Ryder of the Danish Navy, the first explorer of Hubbard Bay. The peak is the highest that he sighted from his farthest north. Mount Operti for Mr. Albert Operti, the Arctic artist, who accompanied Lieutenant Peary on two expeditions. A cairn erected on the peak by Professor Gill in 1896 was named after Mr. Operti. The peak was erroneously called Devil's Thumb by Ryder. The real Devil's Thumb is in Allison Bay. Gill Bay, for Professor Gill of the Cornell Party of 1896, who ascended Mount Operti, overlooking this bay. Tar Bay, for Professor Tar, the leader of the Cornell Party. End of section 1